0: So, let's take a look now, first of all, at the northern kingdom, and then we'll come back and look at some important personages of the southern kingdom and events of the northern kingdom. But we begin then with the first king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam. And uh, Jeroboam had been one of the officials in Solomon's administration, Uh, Highly respected, highly capable, okay? And, um, uh, but he has concerns with the kind of oppression that Solomon is inflicting upon the people in terms of the forced labor and uh, taxes and so forth. And he expresses that and gets in trouble with Solomon. And so he has to flee, And actually, as he is fleeing, he is confronted by a prophet of the Lord who does an object lesson for him. He takes a new robe and tears it into 12 pieces. It's kind of similar, reminiscent to what we saw earlier between Samuel and Saul with the torn piece. So the 12 pieces of the robe here represent the 12 tribes and he gives to Jeroboam 10 of those pieces, which is saying you will eventually receive 10 of the tribes here. Okay, And this is before Solomon dies. And uh, uh, the prophet gives to Jeroboam a promise from the Lord. He says, if you are faithful, God will honor you with a dynasty as well, that, that uh, you, you will have a dynasty in the northern kingdom here. So Jeroboam then fled to Egypt and stayed put there until Solomon died He was a refugee there. And once Solomon dies, he comes back and he's part of that contingency then that comes to Rehoboam and says, lighten the load. And uh, then is rebuffed by uh, Rehoboam. So Jeroboam then uh, becomes the king of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. Uh, as you can see here, okay? And um, what are some characteristics of the northern kingdom? Economically, uh, more prosperous than the southern kingdom because the soil is more fertile. uh, There's more rainfall towards the north, and if you've ever had the opportunity to visit the Holy Land, this will become very, very apparent to you especially the region around the Sea of Galilee is a very, very um, uh, lush area. And north of the Golan Heights and so forth, a uh, very, very fertile and productive area. Okay? So that's uh, more prosperous that way. And also because of its trade links. Uh, you can see here the n- northern kingdom abuts with Phoenicia, and the Phoenicians were the leading seafaring traders of the ancient world. Okay, And so uh, there are a lot of alliances between the northern kingdom and Phoenicia in terms of trade going on. Uh, in fact, uh, Jezebel is a princess, a daughter of the king of the Phoenicians, who then becomes uh, the queen of Israel. So a lot of relations there and that. Uh, Is beneficial for the prosperity of the northern kingdom. Politically the northern kingdom is unstable though uh, because there isn't this uh, tribal unity. The southern kingdom has just one tribe and one dynasty but the northern kingdom has multiple tribes and you have somewhat of a reversion back to the uh, tribal identity and uh, more of the confederation structure, although it remains unified, they don't break up into uh, their own distinct tribal um, governance units, but uh, but there's less of the stability and no unifying dynasty. And then certainly religiously, it's less orthodox and more uh, what we'd call apostate, falling away from the covenant because of alternatives to the temple, which also mean alternatives to the worship of the true God and more accommodation of foreign thought and foreign religion, uh, the Canaanite religion. And that's why the northern kingdom will fall much sooner than the southern kingdom does. Uh, One of the first things that King Jeroboam does is sets up two altars in the northern kingdom and uh, prescribes that the people worship at these altars and lo and behold, what does he put on the top of the altar? But a golden calf. Okay. <laughs> Just like what you saw at the base of Mount Sinai. Okay, So where does he put these golden calves? Here at the shrine of Bethel, which is towards the border, southern border next to Judah, and one in the north at Dan, okay? Where they're already, they're already, well, Bethel had been a more historic place for uh, worship. We read about that in the period of the uh, Joshua and the Judges. And uh, Dan, if you remember that the Danites moved up here, the whole tribe pretty much moved up to the north and set up uh, uh, an altar up there, which now becomes a pagan altar. Okay, So what you have then is Jeroboam setting up these um, two alternates, and the reason given is because he doesn't want people from his territory going down to Jerusalem, to Judah's territory, and worshiping and having that association with Judah, uh, that the king Yahweh dwells in that other country. He says, well, you know, we can have God uh, being worshipped in our territory here as well. Uh, What about the golden calf? Um, The Canaanites oftentimes would depict their gods, such as Baal or El, standing on a calf or on a bull. And that was a symbol of fertility and potency and strength. Now, many have speculated that Jeroboam here intended this to be um, simply the calf would be the throne for Yahweh. To uh, express here, this is where Yahweh sits. Not in the temple in Jerusalem, but he dwells here upon these calves, upon these bulls or whatever. Um, And uh, so he was thinking in terms of Yahweh's being the one who is worshipped. The text doesn't say that specifically, but what the text does say is that Jeroboam says to the people of the northern kingdom, when he builds these two altars, here are your gods, O Israel plural. He doesn't say, here is your God, but God's. So it indicates to me that he's already moving into a more polytheistic uh, pagan understanding. Whatever the case may be, the people associate this with pagan worship. I mean, because it's where the association comes with bulls and so forth. And so they start worshiping pagan gods, Canaanite gods and so forth at these shrines. And uh, the writer of uh, 1st and 2nd Kings will refer back to this and talk about how Jeroboam caused Israel to sin. So this is a great stumbling point for Israel here. But that was just the beginning of it. Um, Jeroboam uh, 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 appoints his own priests, not of the tribe of Levi, even though there are Levites up here in this territory. So he takes it upon himself to go against the Sinaitic law and simply appoint his own priests from various tribes. He assumes the role as priest. He himself offers up sacrifices, okay? Um, And uh, he establishes new festivals, okay? So not the ones prescribed in the law of Moses, but new feasts, new holy days, and new festivals. So in a sense, he's just making up his own religion as he goes here. And so this is uh, an apostasy from the very start. Another thing that is of interest, perhaps, is because the Levites become a bit disenfranchised up here, they will move to the south, many of them. So ma- many of the Levites eventually end out end up down here in Judah the descendants of, of Levi okay so you can see it's a, a <laughs> ominous start for the northern kingdom okay any comments or questions about that this far were yes. they welcoming of the northern coming down to the south I mean, was the southern kingdom welcoming to the northern I guess the um, War is coming down. I mean, I guess they're still the same God, but are they Like, Oh, you're dealing with, with basically Baal and all that. Why don't you come on down? Are they welcoming to that? Yeah, yeah. There's uh, no indication that they discouraged or um, I don't recall if they were actually, you know, um, recruiting people to come south, the Levites to come south, but uh, they certainly were not dissuading them to come south. Anything else at this point? Okay. Um, From here on, we're going to just pick up some important personages, not go through all of the kings of the northern kingdom or all the kings of the um, southern kingdom. In your See Through the Scriptures book, you have the same graphic uh, that that gives you the kings and... and, uh, whether, they're, whether they are approved by the book of kings. Um, a check mark indicates that. Uh, that would mean that they were relatively faithful to the Lord if they received that approval. But uh, one king who certainly does not receive the approval of the book of kings or of uh, Yahweh, and by the way, uh, you'll notice, I don't know, if, yeah, um, here you'll see that The check marks means that, generally speaking, they receive the approval of the writer of the Book of Kings. None of the kings of the northern kingdom do. So they are all essentially apostate. And the one that we're going to look at right now is the one who um, reaches the zenith of apostasy, King Ahab. And is uh, described in the book of Kings as the worst of the whole, worst of the whole bunch. Okay, uh, part of the reason he's so bad is because of the influence of his wife Jezebel. Okay, and no doubt you've heard about Jezebel. Jezebel is another one of these queens who is brought into the picture through a political alliance, a political marriage with Phoenicia, that neighboring country, the uh, mercantile country, uh, the Phoenicians, so important to the northern kingdom here. And Jezebel uh, is married to Ahab in this alliance, and she is definitely a strong-willed woman. (laughs) Not only does she come and bring her shrines and her gods and so forth to the northern kingdom. But she becomes very, very militant about her religion. Um, so that it's not just, well, you can worship Baal and the Asheroth and uh, Yahweh and you know a few other sundry gods. But... There's no worship of Yahweh. Up until this point, um, the people were still worshiping Yahweh up in the northern kingdom, but he was just one of many other gods. It was very syncretistic, unionistic, if you will, syncretistic. But Yahweh was still in the picture. But Jezebel comes, and she wants to expunge the worship of Yahweh from Israel, from the northern kingdom. And she brings with her not only all her shrines and temples and so forth, but also 450 prophets of Baal uh, to be the missionaries of her religion. And uh, any prophet of Yahweh is to be exterminated. Okay, that's the policy here. And Ahab is kind of milk toast before his wife. Whatever she says, uh, he does. So he obliges her. Okay. Um, And this then sets the uh, context for the first significant prophet of the divided kingdom. And in many ways... Uh, one of the first of the classical prophets, Elijah. Okay, anyone know what the name Elijah means? Some of you Hebrew scholars here, David. Or, okay. okay. Like Yahweh is my God or yeah, exactly. Yahweh is my God. Okay. So. Whenever you see Jah, that's really Yah, okay, Yahweh, okay, it's uh, abbreviated for the name of God. L here is God, okay, and the I there is the uh, pronominal possessive suffix for my, okay, so Yahweh is my God. So his name essentially epitomizes here or communicates what his mission is to to confess Yahweh is the true God not only his God but the true God. So what you have now is um, the dominance of Baal worship and uh, Baal was the God of what? god of thunder okay the god of the thunderstorm why is baal so important Bring the brings the rain the thunderstorm brings the rain okay which causes crops to grow brings fertility okay and so what you do what you have here is elijah this called elijah the tishbite very very interesting character uh, he says that he's kind of like a, a mountain man uh, bushy hair, bushy beard. He's described as wearing kind of a, a leather clothing and stuff, uh, just almost right out of the wilderness. Uh, John the Baptist will be uh, one who carries on that kind of garb and uh, appearance as the second Elijah in New Testament times. Okay, but uh, he he kind of comes out of the wilderness to the the capital of the northern kingdom, which is Samaria at this time, and comes to Ahab and says, you think that your God is the true God, Baal? Well, my God, Yahweh, is the true God, and I'll prove it to you. A drought will now start, and your God will not be able to do anything about it. And remember, Baal is the god of the storm, of rain, and so if if Baal is really in control of of that force of nature, then um, more allegiance, more attention to him should provide more rain. But uh, essentially what Elijah's message is is what we saw in the book of Exodus with the plagues on Egypt. Again, that checklist, that's not a god, that's not a god. He's demonstrating that Baal truly is not the God who provides rain and fertility and life. Okay? And so there is a drought. Uh, That message is not one that is received very favorably by Ahab and certainly not by Jezebel. And uh, so uh, the Lord tells Elijah, go and hide, essentially, in the wilderness. On the other side of the Jordan the Transjordan, east side, uh, alongside a brook, and uh, there you will have water to drink, and uh, the Lord will provide, and he provides food to Elijah by these ravens that morning and night bring him bread and meat. But the, the point here is that God is the one who controls the spigot on the rain, not Baal. And it's very clear to everyone that that's the message coming through here. Uh, eventually, though, even that brook where Elijah was uh, dries up. And so the Lord says, now go to Phoenicia. okay, To uh, Zarephath uh, in Phoenicia. This is the pagan territory that Jezebel had come from. The one who is in many ways the cause of much of the apostasy in Israel. So, the Lord says to Elijah, go there for I have appointed for a woman to care for you there. And uh, the Lord makes the connection with the woman. She's a widow. And uh, in ancient times, widows were in desperate straits. Okay, Really, really. Um, had a hard life, uh, supporting themselves. We saw that when we were talking about the book of, of Ruth. And especially in a time of drought, times are tough for a widow. And she has a small son, and uh, and she welcomes Elijah in. And the interesting thing is that she recognizes right away that Yahweh is his God, and she even acknowledges Yahweh as being the true God, whether or not she yet is making the confession that he's the only God, but she's recognizing he's the one in charge. Um, she recognizes that, no doubt, because of the drought. So she welcomes Elijah into her home. But uh, the problem is, uh, she says, I've just got a one day's supply. <laughs> the day that they meet, she says, I've got only one day's supply of wheat and of oil for for." cooking the the bread patties with. And Elijah says, trust the Lord. Let me dwell with you and trust the Lord in this. And uh, you're probably familiar with the story that every day the supply of flour and of oil was replenished supernaturally, miraculously. So the Lord sustained Elijah and his hosts, this woman and her son. But a while later then, her son uh, gets sick and dies. And uh, she cries out, and and she says, um, Why, O Elijah, have you made me conscious of my sin here? So she she accredits the trouble that she's had, and especially the death of her son, upon her sin, uh, which is kind of a, a... First step of repentance here, of acknowledging, I'm a sinner. And uh, so Elijah then goes up and uh, raises the boy from the dead. And uh, this elicits another expression of confession of faith from the woman, that Elijah's God is the true God. Uh, This is significant, though, because (laughs) this is the first time in the Old Testament where you have a... Raising from the dead. A resuscitation. We can't call it a resurrection. The only resurrection that's taken place is Jesus's. uh, That is the first fruits of the general resurrection that will take place later. Because later this child will die. And in a true resurrection, you rise to never die again. So we call it a resuscitation. But it is a raising from death. Showing again God's power not only to provide life and to sustain life but to restore life in this child and uh, later on we'll see Elisha, Elijah's successor will also raise from the dead okay well um, finally things get really bad after three and a half years of drought and uh, people are becoming desperate even Ahab is And so Elijah communicates to the king and he says, let's have a contest to see whose God is really God. And we'll have this contest up on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is um, uh, up in the northern kingdom, almost parallel with, I don't think I've got a map here, but uh, the same latitude as the Sea of Galilee now the area of Haifa, but uh, uh, just overlooks the the Mediterranean Sea, high high outcropping overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, in this contest, this competition, uh, Elijah says, we'll build two altars, and uh, you put wood on one altar, have your prophets of Baal, those 450 prophets of Baal, put the wood on, slaughter the bull, and cry out to Baal for him being the thunder god, the lightning god to set it afire the idea was with lightning um, and then I'll do the same and that will demonstrate whose god is the true god well the prophets of Baal uh, set up their altar and put in the wood and and uh, go through all their incantations and liturgies and chantings and so forth and the crickets just chirp. Nothing's happening. And uh, so they try harder, dancing around, trying to make more noise, whooping it up, so that Yale uh, Bale will hear. And again, no response. And about midday—this started in the morning. About you know lunchtime, then Elijah starts uh, egging them on and mocking them, saying. Well, you know, why don't you shout louder? Maybe Baal is napping somewhere. Maybe he's sleeping, okay? Or perhaps he's taken a journey. Or maybe he's out in the privy relieving himself, okay? Um, Mocking their God. And so they they go to great extremes. They start cutting themselves. It says that they're bleeding profusely and uh, thinking that this will get the attention of their God. But of course... Nothing happens. Uh, It's just calm. So now you've got their efforts, and and, and towards the latter part of the day here, uh, Elijah steps up, and he builds an altar made out of the 12 12 stones, again, reminiscent of those uh, monuments that we saw earlier at the time of the conquest and the uh, uh, judges and so forth. 12 stones representing God's covenant people of Israel. And he puts wood on the altar and the sacrificial victim on the altar. But then he kind of makes it double jeopardy by instructing the people of uh, who had gathered here, and Ahab's there as well, observing all this, but instructs them to bring multiple jars of water, buckets of water, and they just douse everything in the altar, okay, Okay. uh, to make it, (laughs) you know, so it would be difficult to ignite by anyone. And uh, he speaks a prayer. um, And uh, it's a covenantal prayer. And uh, uh, this is what he prays. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, again, invoking the covenant with Abraham, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. So the fire comes down whether it's a lightning bolt or fireball or whatever, and just consumes everything. All you've got is this scorch mark on the earth. And uh, the the message is quite clear here who is the true God. Okay, well, uh, Elijah then uh, says this is a holy war. God is waging, and so he has those 450 prophets of Baal slain, and uh, Ahab has seen this, and uh, Ahab then is to return back. Um, But before they leave Mount Carmel the Lord takes Elijah up to the top, has him look out to the west over the Mediterranean Sea, and says, What do you see out there? Nothing. Another time, What do you see? Nothing. Time and time again until the seventh time, What do you see? Oh, look, there's a little cloud. Just like a little hand with fingers, you know, extending. And then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it comes over, and the rains commence, and a deluge. Again, showing that Yahweh is the true lord of the natural forces and of rain. And uh, so, again, it's a great, great demonstration of God's power and dominion. Well, you'd think that with that great victory, Elijah would be at the pinnacle of his... um, Influence and prestige among the people of the north. But that doesn't happen because Ahab arrives back home in uh, Samaria. Jezebel has been there and she learns about what's happened and that her um, doting priests have been slaughtered. And she's infuriated. And she puts out a contract on Elijah, dead or alive. She wants him. And Elijah, uh, even though he's been a great man of faith, uh, he kind of experiences here burnout and fear. He flees for his life. And he flees south out of Israelite territory into Judah and towards the desert, into the desert, the Negev desert, And towards Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Okay, Why do you think he's going there? Okay, it's a holy place. He's exhausted. He's tired of being among all these unholy, unfaithful people who have despised the covenant. He's going back to the source of the covenant. And probably, you know, he's he's intending to die there. In fact, that's what the text says. Uh, he, he, at one time, he lays down behind a broom tree, juniper tree. And uh, the Lord appears to him as it, through an angel and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> Did I send you here? Did I tell you to come here? And Elijah says, um, the people of Israel have forsaken you. They've torn down Uh, The the worship of the true God, they've they've, uh, apostatized, they've killed the prophets. I and I alone am left, and now they're trying to kill me. Why don't you just let me die? Take my life, O Lord. And God is very gracious. He's very patient with Elijah. Uh, His angel delivers some rations, some refreshments to kind of strengthen him. Some food lets him rest. And uh, and then comes back, what are you doing here? Elijah has kind of the same recitation uh, pity party for oh. himself and uh, he actually goes further into the desert. And finally the Lord says, well, uh, let me let me teach you something here." And uh, he causes there to be a great uh, couple of demonstrations of natural... Um, Disasters, if you will. Earthquake, cyclone, tornado, uh, conflagration, a big firestorm, so forth. But every time Elijah recognizes the Lord's not in that. And then it's just in what some have translated a still small voice or a gentle breeze that Elijah recognizes the Lord's in this. What do you think he was trying to teach Elijah through that? Well, he can command anything, and he can be supremely powerful, but he can also act in, in ways that you wouldn't expect as
1: well. Excellent,
0: excellent. Okay. So God will do his will, and he can do it in some very, very dramatic, extraordinary ways with great pyrotechnics. Okay. But his presence is also in the ordinary, in the quiet, in the things that you oftentimes are not prone to see or to notice him. And he says, in a sense, I'm still working. I'm still doing my work. Okay? You've seen some pyrotechnics, uh, but it just isn't when I'm doing those pyrotechnics that I'm doing my work here. And then he gives a promise. To Elijah, he says, things are going to change. You're not my only servant here. Elijah had said, I alone am left of those who are faithful to, me, to you in Israel. And God says, that's not the case. There are still 7,000 in Israel, in the northern kingdom, who have not bowed their knees to Baal or uh, kissed, worshipped him. So you're not on your own. There are others. And I'm going to raise up others to help you in this uh, combat, in this struggle. You're going to have another assistant, Elisha. He will assist you and succeed you. And then there will be others who will actually see to the overthrow of the reign of Ahab and his successors. Okay? So there's the promise there. This isn't just all up to you, Elijah, but I'll do my work through you and others. So Elijah goes back. Okay, Eventually, Ahab does die um, in battle with the Syrians, the Arameans, okay? And uh, this is actually in a battle where the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom align together and uh, join together in common cause against their northeastern enemies, the the Syrians, the Arameans. And um, Ahab says to the king of Judah, you take the royal chariot, you don yourself, in royalty so that you're the kind of uh, monarchical figurehead of this campaign. But I'm going to camouflage myself as an ordinary person, an ordinary soldier here, uh, so that I can get in there and and, uh, uh, be just kind of um, clandestine. Well, um, what happens then is that the the Syrians are really looking for the king, (laughs) To get the king. and uh, uh, But just a stray arrow. Hits Ahab. Okay. So the Lord. Seeks him out. He's not going to hide from the Lord. In this. And the stray arrow hits Ahab. You can see the picture here. And uh, Ahab then. Dies a slow death. Uh, he's in a chariot. That's more self-contained. And that's then what this. Illustration would have, and the chariot just kind of slowly fills up with his blood. Okay, and uh, eventually, uh, I mean, they're they're trying to get him back uh, to safe territory, and eventually they uh, do get him uh, to the city, but he he's he dies, and when they kind of clean out the chariot from his blood, the dogs come and lap up his blood and it kind of goes into this pool where the prostitutes come and do their washing so it's it's, it's just as Elijah had foretold uh, he would die a shameful death uh, because of his falling away from the Lord okay we'll quickly uh, finish here with the uh, prophet uh, Elisha moving on to Elisha and then take a break Uh, The prophet Elijah, then, um, departs from the scene early in 2 Kings. So it would be good for you to recognize that 1 Kings, the main character, really, of 1 Kings, other than Yahweh himself, is pretty much Elijah. In 2 Kings, then, you have the narrative that begins with Elisha although it goes all the way to the end of the destruction of the southern kingdom as well. So it, Elisha is the first part of 2 second kings. But the hinge between first and second kings is really the transition between Elijah and Elisha. And at the beginning then of, of second kings, Elijah is, to use the popular nomenclature here of being whisked up into heaven, rapture, Uh, he's kind of raptured, okay? Uh, Elisha is there to witness it and to succeed him, and in fact, Elisha receives um, Elijah's cloak, his mantle, if you will, and uh, just before Elijah is taken up into heaven, his ministry, his mission complete, okay? Um, Elijah parts the water of the river and they walk through, showing that covenant um, um, power that God has given to them. Uh, after Elijah is taken up into heaven and Elisha assumes the mantle, he comes back the same way, the same river, and he takes that mantle and touches the uh the river, and it parts. So the the sons of the prophets who are there, who witnessed this, recognize now that Elisha will continue on the ministry of Elijah. Okay? Now, Elisha's ministry is less dramatic than Elijah's. A uh, little more behind the scenes, quieter, less... Um, Glorious, if you can say that. I mean, you don't have these big contests up on Mount Carmel. You don't have massive droughts cover the whole land and so forth at his instigation. But there are a lot of little acts of mercy showing God's mercy to his people. The first one is the healing of the water in which... um, uh, the, the townspeople are, are really dependent upon a well that has become polluted and um, uh, the water uh, causes children to become sick and so forth. And uh, Elisha purifies the water for the people. So they're all kind of little acts of compassion and mercy. Uh, just like Jesus, you know so many of his miracles were just little personal, Miracles showing God's mercy and compassion upon people, such as the changing of the water into wine, the uh, the, the healing of of the uh, woman who's had the blood flow, and so forth. Okay, uh, Elisha also raises a woman's son. Uh, this is a Shumanite woman and uh, she is um, one who also takes him in. She's not poor. She's actually wealthy, but uh, she takes him in. She even provides a a space for Elisha to live. Elisha is fairly um, transient, so he moves here or there, but this is kind of always a place he can come back and find refuge and find lodging. And uh, so she's very gracious in that gesture to him. And um, um, her son also dies. And Elisha is able to bring him back to life through the power of the Lord. I should say the Lord brings him back to life. But again, showing that power of life just like Elijah had. Uh, There's the story here of Naaman. Naaman... He's not an Israelite at all. He is from Syria, Damascus. Okay? So uh, the country that oftentimes at this time was at war with Israel. And, um, and yet, for those who will call upon the Lord, even from a pagan country like this, uh, the Lord shows mercy through Elisha. Uh, Actually, the way that Naaman learns of Elisha is through a slave girl, a young girl who had been captured uh, uh, in probably warfare and becomes a slave in his household, servant girl. And uh, Naaman is a great general in the Syrian army. Um, He contracts leprosy. And uh, the slave girl says, well, I know someone who can heal you. In my home country of Israel, Elisha, the prophet. Well, no, she doesn't uh, specifically say that, but she says, I know that in my country you can be healed from the pro- by the prophets. And uh, so Naaman uh, goes into Israel and goes to the king and says, okay, <laughs> I've been told I can be healed here. Uh, bring me healing. The king says, what in the world... Who am I to heal you? Is this some kind of trick? Is your king setting me up for some kind of conflict here? And uh, Elisha hears about this and sends word and says, I'll take care of it. And so uh, Naaman then goes to the place where Elisha is. Actually, they do not meet personally uh, as this, I'm assuming this is Naaman here and Elisha here, uh, uh uh, Elisha communicates through a servant uh, and simply says, go and wash seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be clean, you'll be healed. And Naaman goes, oh, we've got rivers in Damascus. We've got rivers in Syria. They're better rivers than the Jordan River. What's this? And he heads home, frustrated. But Some of his servants say, no, why don't you just do what the holy man said? And so he does go down to the Jordan River, dips seven times, and comes out clean. Okay, And then uh, he offers up uh, quite a, a offering to Elisha, which is probably what this is, yeah, uh, this follow-up scene, bringing the offerings to Elisha. And Elisha won't take it. He says, no, I'm not in this for the money and Uh, It's Yahweh who healed you. So, um, unfortunately, his servant Gehazi is not so inclined to let the money go. And uh, there's a whole story behind that. And eventually, Gehazi, because of his greed, uh, contracts the leprosy. Okay. Um, Lastly, then, here with Elisha, is uh, a revolt. That Elisha then announces will take place the fulfillment of what the word of the Lord had said to Elijah when he was in the wilderness. And uh, this is now ultimately the undoing of the line of Ahab. And uh, the one who is raised up, really anointed through Elisha, or really through his agent, uh, to be the next king, is named Jehu. Jehu, and Jehu now um, uh, instigates a revolt, and it leads to the death of, of uh, Ahab and Jezebel's son and grandson, Jehoram and Ahaziah, and ultimately Jezebel herself. Jehu comes to the palace where Jezebel is, seeking her out. She's up there in the pinnacle looking out the window. And Jehu says to the eunuchs who are attending to her, whose side are you guys on? And they demonstrate whose side they're on. (laughs) They push her out the window. She falls and uh, has a big splat on the pavement. Blood splatters everywhere, okay, on the buildings, on the horses. The splat irritates the horses. They get agitated. They they start kind of prancing and so forth, and uh, uh, she's down there on the ground, so they prance all over her and kind of make mush out of her. And, uh, And by the time Jehu is able to kind of pick up the pieces... Uh, All that's left is her skull and her hands because the dogs got to what was left of this uh, bloody mass and ate her up. So another very undignified demise for Jezebel, just as had been foretold. Okay, and then after that, uh, Elisha's ministry is essentially done because what we have is a new dynasty with Jehu, Uh, The dynasty that Ahab had been a part of and his uh, son and grandson now uh, is ended. And so we have Jehu's dynasty.